This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore, this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally, mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm Brandon Pollan, and of course, as always, I am joined by my co-host, F. Scott Beal. And today we have the extreme pleasure of having one of the best PTs that I currently know. And I've been so blessed to work alongside him and learn from him in clinic as we both currently work together at the Virginia Center for Spine and Sports Therapy in Midlothian, Virginia. I'd also like to give a shout out to everyone at our VCSST team for the amazing work that everyone does every day. Now, for those of you who don't know a little bit about our guest, we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Andrew Rothschild. Now, for those of you who don't know who he is, he is a 2006 graduate of VCU's Medical College of Virginia with his doctorate in physical therapy. He has been a physical therapist for nine years, working in a variety of outpatient orthopedic clinical settings. He became a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist in 2008 and received his manual therapy certification from the Ola Grimsby Institute in 2010. He went on to complete manual therapy, residency, and fellowship training through the Ola Grimsby Institute in 2011 and 2012, and became a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists in 2013. He has served as adjunct faculty and guest lecturer in the Department of Physical Therapy at Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU, and has also provided lectures at the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Memphis, Tennessee. And he has extensive training in spinal manipulation and dry needling and has served as a clinical mentor, not only for students in PT school, but for physical therapists working towards their manual therapy fellowship. He is currently teaching for the Institute of Advanced Musculoskeletal Treatments, and he is a contributor to the Modern Manual Therapy blog. For fun, he also is a former college soccer player, and he also has a bachelor's in geography. But now, Andrew, first and foremost, thanks so much for all that you've done for the profession, for all of the students and clinicians that you have mentored as, you know, you're one of the best in the business that I've met, that I've met. And, you know, of course, I realize that I kept your bio pretty brief here, man. But, you know, was there anything that you'd like our audience to know about you that I didn't mention in this brief intro? Uh, first of all, if, if I'm one of the best you've met, you've got to go meet some more physical therapists. <laughs> we'll start with that. Um, but uh, I think one other thing about me, I guess, that, that, that does serve a, uh, from a clinical standpoint is just having gone through my own uh, experience with surgery, rehab, and uh, some persistent pain, having had a spondylolisthesis and L4-5 fusion in uh, 2000, so almost 17 years ago. And that's kind of what got me interested uh, initially in physical therapy as a profession. And then dealing with my own bouts of persistent pain over the past 17 years um, kind of got me more interested in the uh, persistent pain uh, realm of things. 
Yeah, that's awesome, Andrew. I love hearing those stories about what turned people on to physical therapy. And, and more often than not, it's people have had to go through the rehab themselves. So uh, kudos to you, man. I, I love it. Um, Andrew, what made you decide to pursue a residency fellowship? And what specifically was it about the Ola Grimsby Orthopedic Residency and Fellowship Program that made you decide to apply there? Um, and what, what did the overall cost of that program look like? Well, I this in my second position, I'd worked for a physician-owned PT practice right out of PT school for about a year and a half um, until I got a little bored and frustrated and uh, moved on with a, a friend of mine who worked for a larger one of the, one of the large corporate uh, PT practices in the country. And we were fortunate that the director of clinical education for the entire company worked out of our office in Richmond, Virginia, and he had been a former instructor with the Ola Grimsby Institute. And I really didn't know much about it at the time. Um, we really didn't have a, a, a significant amount of manual therapy in my initial PT education in PT school, I would say. Some very basic stuff, but really not a lot of really not a lot of immersion into the hands-on time. And even in some of my clinicals, I didn't get a, a great hands-on exp um, exposure. I got a lot of you know, a lot of McKenzie exposure in one place and, and more exercise in another place and a little bit of hands-on stuff, but really nothing significant that I really felt comfortable or confident doing those things. And I was fortunate enough that the place I was working, they offered a sort of a one-year COMT, so a manual you know, therapy certification program um, that they essentially covered, I guess, paid for. And that was through the Ola Grimsby Institute. And so that was one weekend a month for a year, essentially. Um, and that was my first exposure to it. And just the instructor I had, um, who later became my residency and um, part of my fellowship instructor, was just, he, he's the director of clinical research at the Cleveland Clinic. And he was just, un he also has his PhD in, in neuroscience. So he was just unbelievably knowledgeable and just kind of talking all this stuff that I had brand new to me. I'd never heard before in my life explained this way and applied this way. And it was just fascinating. And I realized just how interesting it was. And it kind of, you know, some of the stuff that they taught, even those very brief kind of just covering the surface and the certification, it just really kind of connected with me in a way that it kind of just really made sense. And I, I just kind of bought into it, kind of hook, line and sinker. And it was after the year of the certification course that a couple of people who were also in it got together and we tried to figure out how we could do a residency. And then all we had to, the way they, Ola Grimsby sets it up is they have certain ones going throughout the year. Uh, a lot of times there's one in Seattle, there's one in Cleveland. Uh, and, and, but they will, instead of always having it at specific spots, if you have enough people in a, in a given area that are interested in doing it, they'll bring an instructor to you. So we were able to get enough people who were interested in doing it the, the, the uh, certification course was in Northern Virginia, but we would be agreed because a couple of people were from North Carolina. And we ended up having it in Richmond, actually, so it was very convenient for me. We did the, all the coursework, the weekend lectures um, in Richmond, and then we had to do our one-on-one -on -one mentorship with uh, a fellow or uh, instructor through the Institute um, in different parts of the country. So it just worked out that way. We had enough people to do it, and that was uh, just that exposure was kind of what got us interested in doing the residency. And then again, those of us who did the residency, there's enough of us who wanted to do the fellowship. And we kind of just kept that going the next year. 
Awesome. And I think, you know, the perspective and the story that you bring up, especially with, you know, kind of realizing and self-assessing and seeing how your program was and what are some of the strengths and limitations behind it. And then, you know, kind of being exposed to kind of that next level through this can definitely make those continuing education and programs definitely seem to be very an attractive option. And, you know, Andrew, I'm kind of curious here, what are some questions that you as a potential residency fellowship applicant asked yourself to see if doing a residency fellowship was right for you? I didn't think a lot of it at the time, other than I knew that there was a lot I didn't know. I had been, I'd been working about four years, I guess, when I, before I did the residency. And I knew that there was so much that I didn't know. I'd taken a bunch of, you know, weekend courses. I'd done McKenzie A and B. I'd done some, some other, a foot ankle course here and a shoulder course there. And just sort of these, you know, these piecemeal courses that kind of help a little bit. You learn some things, you learn some, a couple applications, you learn a couple techniques. But I just really felt that I know I didn't know enough. I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was, it was that frustration of when patients weren't getting better, was it because I didn't know something? And I wasn't sure at the time even how to go about doing more. I mean, I, I, did the, I, did the, I studied for the OCS exam and passed it after only being a clinician for a year and a half. But that didn't make me feel like I still knew anything. I knew how to take a test well, but I didn't really still feel like a really skilled, knowledgeable clinician. And I wasn't sure where to get that information. And this is also now going back, you know, eight years in that before really Twitter, before really these social media platforms. Now that we have so many so much access to a variety of of people and information, it was like you know this this is when the iPhone first just came out, and so I I wasn't really sure how to go about doing it. But then I had at at my I had it right in front of me doing this certification program, all this information. That was just new and exciting and, and made sense, and, and I could see it, and I could, it, it made sense logically. I could see how it applied, and it was really putting some of these pieces together. So I, I didn't even really ask so much questions, other than how much it, was it going to cost, and when could we start? And you know, you talked a little bit about buying in, and the pun somewhat intended. What was the cost on that? So the the tuition cost. For residency at the time, I want to say it was between ten and twelve thousand dollars. So definitely not inexpensive. That's definitely a uh, an investment in yourself there for sure. Yes, and, and that did not include the, any travel. Obviously, any travel because you had to do 130, 130, 150 hours. I think for the residency of and I, again, I was fortunate I didn't have to travel extra for the actual coursework. That was it was in my clinic in Richmond. But traveling for, I traveled to Seattle and, and Cleveland, you know, go for a week at a time. So having to pay for travel, lodging, food, all that kind of stuff. So that was extra on top of that. One advantage is that there was no charge for, a lot of places will charge, uh, people's fellows can charge for their mentoring hours. So they can charge if, if uh, someone comes to them or if they go to them. So there, but there's no charge within the Ola Grimsby Institute for the mentoring hours. Well, speaking of that, let's uh, let's talk about your residency program. Could you walk us through what the program entailed from like the didactic learning portion to the mentorship, uh, the teaching research, just to kind of give our listeners some perspective on what the structure of an orthopedic residency program actually looks like? Sure. And I have to say that it has changed since I went through it because actually the, the man, uh, Rick Kring, who was my mentor and my instructor is now actually the CEO 
of the Ola Grimsby Institute after Ola retired a couple years ago. So I know they have been doing a lot of work in terms of really restructuring and reformatting the curriculum. So I can't speak to what it the state that it's in now or kind of like I know it's going to be a little bit different. But when at the time that I went through it, we essentially did a, a, a course, basically a weekend. One we, we did two weekends a month essentially for about ten to eleven months. I think one month actually we had three. We were there for three weekends because it was a five weekend month. I think so. It was basically you know eight to five. Saturday, Sunday, we got a little early on Sunday, twice a month. Um, didactic just covered basically, we went through all the different body regions, talking about anatomy, biomechanics, physiology, uh, research into some of these things, talk, you know, learn techniques, learn variations of techniques. So it's basically, you know, if you're doing, if you're doing cervical spine, it's, it's like going to a cervical spine course for that. And that, but that might be two weekends of cervical spine versus, and then you have knee and then you have, so it was going through each sort of body region because it was a manual therapy driven residency. But the nice component that was a little bit different than other manual therapy residencies and fellowships is that there was an exercise component within the Ola Grimsby Institute. There was something called MET, not muscle energy technique, but medical exercise therapy that was developed by a gentleman named Advar Holton in Norway. And that was, there's something called the Holton Curve. Some people might be familiar with it because it is taught in some, I did actually learn a little bit about that when I was in PT school, but that was adopted by the Ola Grimsby Institute and then sort of rebranded into what's called STEP or Scientific Therapeutic Exercise Progression. So there's a very large exercise component as well. So it's not just the manual aspect of it and the, and the manual clinical reasoning, there's also an exercise component too. So it makes it a little bit more of a comprehensive, or at the time, a little more of a comprehensive treatment program, not just only manual therapy driven. Gotcha. And, you know, and Andrew kind of, I know you kind of touched on um, the mentorship before with kind of those things. How many hours did you say you had to get? 130, 150? I think it was 150 for the residency and then 130 for the fellowship. And the, basically what you had to do is go find an, a whoever, either a, a, an instructor within the, within the Institute or someone who's a fellow or someone who's willing, you know, you could go outside as well, but the challenge was they don't necessarily know the curriculum, the information, what you're supposed to know, how, you know, the techniques might be a little bit different. So they encourage you to do it with a, uh, someone who'd gone through the, uh, the program. And so I actually went out to Seattle um, for most of my time, other than spending a week with my instructor in at the clinic in Cleveland, uh, I went out to Seattle because there were a group of instructors who owned several clinics in the Seattle area. And one of them, uh, Jim Rivard, is now the head of IAMPT or AAMPT right now, American Academy. And so there's a lot of instructors and fellows who work in those clinics. So going there, I was able to basically, I would basically work in the clinic 50 hours a week and just spend time with two or three you know, we had a primary sort of instructor that I would be able to spend time with another couple of guys just to get a couple of different um, perspectives on things. And basically, you're just with them in the clinic and you're and you're helping them treat patients and they're asking you questions and they're kind of just uh, observing how you're doing things and giving you feedback and questioning you. And because um, they again, they know that they kind of know the curriculum. So it's just really the practical application of what you're kind of learning in the didactic uh, aspect of it. And then you're be able, able to apply it in the clinic with, with an instructor. Right. So kind of getting that overall didactic knowledge, then working on the psychomotor aspect, but then working on it, the kind of the clinical reasoning component with actual application with, you know, instructors and getting that real-time feedback. And, 
And what Andrew, did they have to do any like research within the residency or anything like that? So in the, within the residency, it wasn't a we had, we did a um, a literature review. So it wasn't necessarily uh, independent research per se, but we did what was called a literature review in that we had, we chose a certain topic. You know, we didn't do sort of you know we didn't do necessarily like what would be a meta analysis from a statistical um, standpoint, but really going through all the re- the bet latest and greatest research on a certain topic and presenting it in a in, in a certain way. Had to write up a paper, present it. That was the main research part of things at the time. Gotcha. No, I think that was a good summary overall of the residency program. And but you know, of course, after we have the completion of the residency, then comes sitting and being eligible for the board certification exam. And you know, with that being said, Andrew, what are your thoughts on the material tested on the OCS um, exam in terms of real world applicability and relevance in clinical practice? So I'd done the OCS before doing the residency. So I already had that, and I had done that after a year and a half out of being out of PT school. So the residency doesn't prepare you at all for the OCS. And I did have a colleague who was trying to do both at the same time, and she didn't end up passing the OCS first time around because, again, the information is just totally separate. And he, she was told not to do that, but she was just kind of that that personality, so went ahead and did it anyway. But it's just it's. My, my thoughts of it, if it's still any similar to the when I took it, um, however many years ago now, you know, nine, ten years ago, it's not a good test. I mean, again, it's a multiple choice test. If it's going to be an orthopedic clinical residency, I feel like there should be some sort of lab practical component to it. But it's you know the 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 the, the questions are very outdated. They're in a, they're written in a way that a lot of times none of the answers are actually. The correct answer. I was told I was able to find a prep course at the time, which at the time there was very, very few offered. I was told don't even look at research that's any more recent than five years because the questions that are on the test are not going to be um, because of the process of, of the question writing process. The questions aren't going to be updated with the more recent research. So I, I really came out of the test thinking it was a, a ter- terrible exam. Um, and really didn't do a good job of, I mean, I, I just don't think it's a good test. I don't think, like I said, if I can pass it after being a clinician for a year and a half or as little as I knew back then, I, I don't, I think that says enough that it's just not a really good test. That being said, I, I don't, I don't know what it, I still don't understand what it gets you. I mean, that's sort of a separate question, I think, but I'm not sure what that gets you other than the only thing I can think of that it was helpful in terms of it got me to kind of focus and study for four to six months with a, with a couple of colleagues. And I probably learned a bunch of extra things by forcing myself to study. But we didn't, again, there was no study guides. We had no, other than a weekend course that I took three plus weeks before the actual exam, we were just kind of studying whatever we could figure out to, to study. And it was just whatever, we, whatever other resources we could find, that's what we kind of, played around with not knowing what we were actually going to be, what kind of benefit it was going to provide for us. Yeah. Andrew, we hear that a lot um, with people involving the OCS is that it, it, it's a little bit outdated. Um, getting those letters after your name doesn't necessarily mean anything. I think the one take home message that we kind of hear throughout though, is that the preparation and the study for it is really what makes you the better clinician. Uh, now, again, back in the day when you took it, it wasn't necessarily as guided. I think nowadays there's a little bit more structure to how you can guide your studying. But 
how do you think the OCS then could maybe improve uh, in order to help transition residents more appropriately to an evidence-based practice in this current day and age? I think the OCS, it, it has to be essentially like, you know, you don't, if you do a residency, you don't get anything for it. For example, if your goal is to be a fellow in the American Academy, you have to do a fellowship. Now to do a fellowship, most, not everybody, but most places require some sort of residency. It's unless people accept the OCS as a residency equivalent, which it is in no way, in my opinion, even close to being a residency equivalent. But I think if you want to call someone a board-certified orthopedic clinical specialist, they should at the very least have gone through a residency. And for that, there has to be some consistency among residency programs in terms of some core information that is imparted. And then obviously there's going to be a little bit of, you know, McKenzie is going to have a residency and Ola Grimsby has a residency and EIM has a residency. So they're all going to have a, their, their own unique the way that they want to, want to teach things and techniques that they want to teach and clinical reasoning strategies they want to teach. But there still should be some, I think, sort of the, those core basic things that are consistent among residency programs that then you can say everyone has, has met this minimum criteria, because if not all are created equal, then how can we, how can we base sort of the, the quality of, of clinician? Yeah, Andrew, I think that's a really important point for our listeners to hear, kind of hearing that variability that exists within these different types of residency programs is definitely a strong consideration and something that we should be aware of. And kind of going off of that, you know, I know that's one aspect of it, but what are some of the other critiques or li- limitations that you found from your residency training? Well, I think it's, you know, look now it's at this point of knowing what I know now, looking back, what are some of the, some of the, some of the critiques at the time, the way I, the way I tend to learn things is I just kind of go all in, learn it. And then later it's having to go back and kind of figure out what is the kind of, you know, looking at, uh, use, you know, Bruce Lee quote as an example is, Absorb what is useful, discard what is not, add what is uniquely your own. But you can't really do that until you've immersed yourself and really understood the inf- the the information and all the and all that goes with it before you can figure out how you can operate outside of it. So at the time, I just immersed myself totally, absorbed it, and did and just kind of went with it a hundred percent. And then based on after, you know, based on that, looking back, you can see, okay, these are, these are where some limitations are. This is what I don't use a lot of it in a, in a regular clinical practice. I think some of it is nicely, nice for ideal situations, not necessarily always for real world situations. It was definitely heavy in biomechanics, which I think is important to know because it's good to know the joint planes and the angles and these kinds of things in, in detail. Cause then once you really know it, you know, you can also adapt to it for each individual patient. There wasn't a lot of pain science in the sense of what we kind of have learned about it over the past five years, but there was some introduction of dorsal horn inhibition, segmental facilitation, central sensitization, um, a neurophysiological basis for the development of certain situations, not purely a pathoanatomical basis. A lot of the research at the time within that they emphasized within the Old Grimsby Institute was a little bit older research, not as much um, from a lot of the newer things. It, was, it had not been fully updated at the time. 
And it was, it was, you know, some of the, with, with the exercise component, a lot of it is really nice in, in the clinic, but it doesn't necessarily translate very easily to home exercises because it requires a lot of, not a lot of equipment, but a little bit more of an elaborate kind of setup. And it's definitely not very user-friendly for a lot of people. Yeah, I love that take on it, Andrew. If you looked at this then from the perspective of you had to create the perfect roadmap for a residency or fellowship program, how how would these critiques and limitations be addressed in that roadmap? So, I mean, it's it's hard because, you know, just trying to imagine how much time it takes to set up an entire curriculum it's not like just you're, you're not just making one course for the one weekend course. It's, you know, you're, you're creating a whole system ideology, so to speak, approach. And you have to kind of, you have to set that up for looking at a whole, you know, one to two year kind of curriculum. So I, I can imagine that when you have things a certain way and a certain understanding and you have established, you have established sort of a institution, you have established instructors who can learn things a certain way and then things are changing. And we, we see the pendulum swinging a lot these days um, for better or worse towards a lot more of the, for lack of a better word, pain science and, and, and the power of the brain and the nervous system and, and moving away from a lot of pathoanatomical stuff, which I don't think we should necessarily move too far away from, but it's uh, that's the that's always the problem. Sometimes the pendulum swings a little bit too far in one direction, and we got to bring it back. But I, I think that it has to still employ if it's if it's going to be, for example, a manual therapy program. There's still the emphasis on manual therapy. I think there is something to be said for having good technique good, confident hands, knowing what you're doing, being very specific and rigid in terms of how you learn certain things with the also the understanding that not everything has to be actually performed in the clinic in a rigid and dogmatic way. There has to be freedom to um, make adjustments based on individual situations, whether whether it's a clinical situation or in certain characteristics within within the patient. And also that the clinical reasoning aspect really needs to be emphasized even more so. I think with a lot of the stuff that with my growing relationship with Jerry Durham, really getting into some of the patient experience type things, learning how to manage expectations, uh, teaching some of the soft skills, which I think there was a time where we thought it's not something that could be taught. But I think I'm I'm a living example of of someone who can learn these skills, who some of them don't always come naturally um, in certain ways. So I think being able to incorporate the manual skills, the patient management or uh, patient relationship skill aspect of things, sort of that um, emotional intelligence, if you will, incorporating pain science, incor- you know, things that talking about pathoanatomy, talking about biomechanics, having, you know, a good understanding of exercise principles. I mean, these are all the things that have to be in if you want to really have a really well-rounded program to create really knowledgeable, well-rounded clinicians. Yeah, Andrew, that's a beautiful take on there, man. And I appreciate kind of what you were saying and that and really bringing up some of those concerns and that. I think that was very helpful. And 
you know, I'm going to go back a little bit now and kind of switch to kind of going more towards the fellowship route. And, you know, do you think you could kind of walk us through what the fellowship program entailed, you know, kind of from the didactic mentorship and kind of what you had to do with being in the fellowship program? So the fellowship program was, was actually after the residency program being as sort of intense as it was with, you know, two weekends a month for 10, 11 months. The fellowship program, you know, that's the residency is really where you get like the big bulk of the didactic information. And then the, re- the fellowship through the Old Grimsby Institute at the time was really more fine tuning, really not just from the hands on techniques, but then even from the didactic stuff. So it was a little bit less intense. It was mostly one weekend a month for the for about a year. A couple months had uh, a couple weekends per month. So instead of like 22 weekends, it ended up being maybe 14 weekends, something like that. Um, still, it was still 131 on one hours, but it was really, you know, kind of going over the techniques, fine tuning, really t- coming, you know, because you're thrown so much the residency, it's hard to put it really well and confident into practice because um, some of the exercise concepts can be a little bit challenging to get your head around along with everything else that you're doing because it's just kind of go, go, go. So it really was a chance to kind of slow down a little bit, um, like fine tune, pull in some clinical reasoning, see how some of the pieces put together, spending a little bit more time with the exercise component. And then there's more, you know, there's more, manip- more some of the thrust manipulation techniques. There's more advanced um, techniques, more advanced kind of the reasoning process into, you know, a lot of the ideas with through the Ola Grimsby Institute was trying to figure out what the tissue and lesion was. And so we, we can argue about that and that being a, whether that's even possible or not, um, due to what we know now, uh, more recently, especially when it's comes comes to pain. Um, but the clinical, that, that was sort of the thought at the time is that can we determine whether it's a, a disc, a facet joint, a, a ligament, a muscle tendon, this kind of thing. So the clinical reasoning process from the biomechanical pathoanatomical standpoint, fine tuning, uh, that was really what the fellowship ultimately did. Gotcha. So kind of taking the skills that you learned in there and kind of really upgrading it, fine tuning it, and really kind of getting more into the application. I think that's a good take. And and Andrew, I got to ask you this question here, just because I'm kind of curious on this one here. Will you renew your fellowship OCS when it is due and why or why not? So OCS, I'm not going to renew unless I find out later, of course, it's required for the fellowship. I need to look into that, but I'm kind of lazy when it comes to these things. So I don't know. Um, as for the OCS, there's no, re- I see no reason for me to renew it unless I want to just take a pile of money and light it on fire. Because I don't know what it get. What, what does it get me? Well, what's the, what's the purpose of it? No one's, no one's answered that question with any clarity for me because it's just paying however much money it is a thousand or so more dollars just for three letters of which no one cares about other than other physical therapists to use as as somewhat of a status symbol. So at this point, I I don't need or care about letters. So there's no reason why I'm going to renew it. As for the fellowship, yes, I'd renew because I like being active in the American Academy. I like what they're, I like having access to the information. I like being part of, you know, the educational aspect of things. I want to be part of advanced education in the profession. And I think I think residency and fellowship, um, at least in outpatient orthopedic practice, is something that should be required of outpatient orthopedic clinicians, similar to, I mean, similar to the medical model in that it some sort of residency fellowship type thing should be required in that arena. I love it. I love it, Andrew. Um, 
you know, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us tonight uh, and providing some great insight to our listeners on residency and fellowship. Um, we like to end every episode with this question to each of our guests. Uh, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, DPT or other healthcare provider related, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Oh, geez. Only one. Oh, go ham at it, man. Um, <laughs> I think the entire curriculum of the DPT program has to change. And I kind of like what I'm seeing, what EIM is doing at South College. And it sounds like Baylor is starting to do with sort of the accelerated programs in that if you want to still keep it a three-year program, then almost like, you know, you have sort of like your gen eds in undergrad and you have sort of your gen ed, so to speak, in PT school for what is going to be, you know, preparing you for the board exam. But then you essentially have to choose a track. Are you going to go outpatient ortho? Are you going to go acute? Are you going to go peds? Are you going to go neuro, you know, spinal cord injury, whatever. You choose your track and then that's where you spend that last year just immersed in. So if it's outpatient orthopedics, you're essentially spending a year immersed in outpatient orthopedics and you're getting, you know, you're really going even more in detail into the kinesiology, the biomechanics, the anatomy, pathophysiology, um, pain science, hands-on treatment, exercise, both didactically and spending time in, in clinics. And then you basically get a job, so to speak, but you're, do, you're also doing your residency in that first year out of PT school, and that serves as your residency year, but you're still getting paid at that time, just not maybe a full salary. That's just sort of a you know 30,000-foot view of what I, would, I think would be a, a good model going forward. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point, Andrew. And it was interesting when we had Kathy Myrella on not too long ago, who was the um, head of the best practice and physical therapist clinical education task force and how kind of what their suggestion in terms of that was kind of similar to what you said. And, you know, and the big thing that she kind of mentioned that she wanted to really emphasize was that, that these transitions would not increase student debt. So they try to find some way to keep it kind of at least where it is at the minute, you know, if they could, but the goal on there was to ultimately not increase any kind of student debt in any way, shape or form. So I think that was interesting to hear. Well, I, I think that's huge because I mean, the program's got to be, if you're going to keep it three years, you keep it three years. So it should not change the financial cost of the students unless, you know, if you make it a shorter program, it should make it less expensive. But that, that way being that it's not really a fourth year, you're still a three-year program, but then you you get a job working wherever you get a job, but, you are, but you're making money, but you're also still doing a residency-type program. And that would, the way the financials work out would be between you and your, your employer or, or the program that you're, that you're going in through. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's a good take, man. And, and thanks so much again for coming on and for everything, Andrew. And where can our listeners find you online and on social media? Um, so I'm on Twitter at a Rothschild PT, and also that's the same on Instagram. Those are the two best places, um, Instagram and pretty active on Twitter. And occasionally you can find me uh, co-hosting the Healthcare Disruption Podcast with Jerry Durham. Yeah, I love it. When's the next one coming out for that, man? Do you know? Excellent question. We'll have to talk to Jerry. <laughs> there we go. We just got to go hassle Jerry Durham some more. Well, thank you again, man, for everything. And from all of us here... Have a good night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for attending class today. 
and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.